everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. everyone so today I'm doing the weird thing again which is when I kind of don't just talk about one drama that I've seen really recently um I've watched so many dramas in the past well before I, I ever even thought about starting something like this podcast and my memory frankly is totally shit <laughs> so I really don't feel like I can do proper deep dives into a lot of these older shows um that I've watched but some of them are just cool like and I think they're well worth mentioning so I've kind of done this a little bit on the podcast recently um, because I do know that a lot of people listen to podcasts like mine because they're interested in hearing about new shows that potentially they could give a go to Um, so I'm going to talk about two different shows um, on today's podcast and I think they're both really really good So one of them I didn't finish, but there was a very, very personal reason to that, which will not apply to other people at all. Um, And then the other show, and I thought it was really good. And then the other show I did finish, um, but both shows came out in 2017. um, And I'm pretty sure I watched them kind of around the time that they aired from memory. So, you know, it's been a little while as I record this in 2020. So I guess I'll just get started with the first show that I'm going to discuss with you guys today. Okay, so the first show that I want to talk to you guys about today is called The Package. So The Package is a 12 episode, I want to say like, it's very heavy on the romance, um, but it's it's got like light moments, like very funny stuff happens. Like I remember like literally laughing out loud at some of the parts of this show, but then it has these really kind of deeply emotional moments too. But I think a lot of the emotion in this show is kind of around slice of life moments, like the realism, the moments that are familiar to you that you recognize. So while the show has parts of it that are very funny and very light, and it is definitely, you know, the romance is really nice. Um, I felt like it was very deep. Like I think it had hidden depths to it as well. Um, So like I said, it is called The Package. It came out in 2017 and was 12 episodes. So this show, the reason that I guess I picked it up at the time was because of (laughs) the actress. So it does star Lee Yeon-hee, who I 
really, really like for some reason. I don't know. I really like her. I haven't really seen her in like heaps and heaps of stuff. Um, but I do, I just, I don't know, something about her kind of draws me. So I'm always kind of like, oh, what are you working on? Like, maybe I'll check it out. Um, so this, this is like a travel drama. And I guess that was the other thing that really attracted me to it when it first came out. Um, I guess, I think it was kind of marketed like a rom-com and the whole thing is about, you know, this young man in Korea who is having like a severe issue at work. And so he gets on a plane and he goes over to France and he goes on a package tour. And now if I'm remembering correctly, um, I'm pretty sure that he's meant to be there with his girlfriend um, and she dumps him and everything is just, you know, absolutely the worst ever. Um, and so he goes over to France and he ends up on a package tour. So like a coach tour, basically. And obviously, um, Eon, he plays the travel guide who's taking the coach around and everything's quite ridiculous, but also really realistic and beautiful and moving kind of in equal parts. Like some of the comedy in it is far out, like ridiculous and Oh, I don't know, very lighthearted and very quirky, but then some of these other moments were just so moving to me. Um, so it also stars the actor Jung Yong-hwa. Um, so Jung Yong-hwa, I know, is a, I want to say K-pop star, but I think also like he's a musician. Um, he's very, very famous. He is in a band, but I don't know because I don't follow K-pop quite as much as I, I do with my K-dramas. Um, so forgive me if you are a big Jung Yong-hwa fan. I have seen him in some other dramas. Um, so he's a familiar face to me, but he's not someone that I particularly follow around K-drama land. Interestingly, um, this show also has Cheo Shik, Cheo Shik, however you say his name, oh goodness, um, from, you know, Parasite and a whole bunch of other things. So he's obviously super famous now, but he just has a little side role in this. Kind of reminds me that, you know, he wasn't such a big movie star all that long ago. It's crazy. Um, so let me think. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen this show and I guess I should, <laughs> I should probably tell you why I didn't finish it at the time because... I really, really, really liked it. Um, I was really sucked deep into the story and I felt very, very emotional about it all. And basically the whole thing is these, you know, it's this whole coach load of Korean travelers going around France. All the travel stuff is just freaking gorgeous. Like I'm a big, I have a big travel bug. Like I love traveling. I love going to places that I've never been. And I love seeing that kind of stuff. So the idea of kind of melding a K-drama with a travelogue or a travel documentary was just really, really cool. And I loved seeing France in this drama. It was beautiful. Um, particularly one location, like really stood out to me, like crazy. Um, this place in France, and I'm sorry, I can't speak French, so I'm sure I will butcher this as well. Um, Mont Saint Michel, Michel, <laughs> it's an abbey basically, and it just looks insanely cool. It's this, you know, old medieval abbey and small town built on a bloody island in a huge tidal inlet, you know, place in the sea and the, you know, the tide comes in and it's just fully an island. And then the tide goes out and it's just surrounded by sand. This place looks extraordinary. And a lot of the drama is filmed there, which was 
just so cool. Um, and then also just sort of trucking around France. So I think the travel stuff for me was just madly appealing. I was really, really into it. And then the rest of the drama, it's like, there's a lot of dramatic moments, I guess, but at the same time, it has this very slice of life feel. And the truth is that back at the time when this drama came out and I was watching it, um, in hindsight, I'm realizing it was about a year after, but I had gone through um, just a really sad thing in my family. And this drama just hit too close to home for me and I couldn't handle it at the time. I think if I watched it now, I would be completely fine and I would totally watch it to the end because I was very moved by it and I thought it was very beautiful. But I guess the truth of why I didn't finish this one was because, um, you know, four years ago now as I record this, but back then it was still a bit too raw for me. But my mum had died and she had died of cancer and there is a character, like the most minutest side character. So one of these, she's kind of, um, you know, an older woman and she's going on this French package tour with her very grumpy husband and she happens to know in the drama that she's dying of cancer and she hasn't really told him and she's just so unhappy and it is very very moving and by no means is it a huge part of this show it really is just a little side character thing but it was like every episode she would get like maybe you know five minutes of screen time per episode if if that there's a lot of different hijinks going on um but I found it so overwhelmingly sad that I couldn't continue with the show but I think that you know I'm well aware that that is a completely personal sort of gut emotional reaction to something that I was going through in my own life at the time that I really needed things that were just plain fluffy and happy. And I, it was just too close to home for me. But I don't think that, you know, and I guess that's why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast and kind of bring it up because I do think this drama is worth watching. Um, well, from my memory, I really, really enjoyed it at the time, other than that thing that made me so sad. But I think that other people might enjoy to have a look and check it out now. And it's also not that long at only 12 episodes. So let's see if I can remember what was actually going on. So basically, um, we have this this young dude um, played by the actor Jung Yong-hwa. So his character is called Maru. So from memory, Maru has this very like, corporate job and he is kind of he's done the right thing there and it's I just remember his whole corporate job thing was just driving me insane because it was so I felt so sorry for him he's basically backed into a corner at work I think they're all trying to scapegoat him or something so and his girlfriend dumps him and everything is just completely fucked and he's like this really sweet quirky very weird young man. Like I really liked him in this drama, but he was very odd. Um, so as an example of this kind of human being that he is, is like, they go to this, um, you know, incredible place in France, this St. Mont-Michel place, <laughs> this beautiful medieval island abbey place. And, you know, heaps of the dramas filmed there. It's like pretty extraordinary. And then they all climb up to this tower and they find this pair of basically, like, I think it was a chastity belt or something. I can't even remember now, but like, you know, basically metal underpant things with like little teeth in them or something nuts like that. Some weird old medieval shit from Europe. Like, and of course the tour guides like, don't 
fucking put these on. Like, just don't do it. Like, you'd be crazy to do that. You would be, that would be so strange. Like, what a strange thing to do. And of course, this young man, Maru, the second that he's left alone in this room, he's like, oh, I'm going to put these like mad metal underwear on. So he puts them on over his pants. And of course, you know, there's no key. There's some old weird, rusty medieval thing. And then he has to go and find um, Eon He's character, who is his travel guide. Who, you know, they're, they're kind of having a bit of a thing, but she thinks he's pretty bloody odd. And he has to go and find her and admit to her that he went and tried on these ridiculous metal underpant things. And, you know, she has to help him. It, like, that sounds so stupid. Like, and it, it's, it's not like highbrow kind of humor, I suppose, that scene. But for some reason, I found it very, very funny. Um, and I think part of it is just, you know, obviously the humor of the situation is ridiculous, but a lot of it was, I think, the fact that Maru was this kind of young man that would just do it, that would try it on, but he's not like super brash. He's not someone who's flouting authority. Like, I just really thought his personality was very interesting. He was just quirky and, and kind of like sweet and odd. And I liked him. I really liked him. So he's kind of just going through, you know, this French trip, but he's, he's quite upset. Like he's got a, his, his life has really fallen apart, but he's also very sweet. And he, and the, you know, travel agent, travel, travel to a guide lady. So her name played by Eon, he is so, so. Yoon Soso. Hmm, it's an interesting name. So Yoon Soso has obviously her own baggage from the past. And we realize pretty early on that she is running from like a marriage that potentially she's got married when she was younger. And the drama really kind of teases this very kind of angry, brash young dude who's trying to find her. And he's like very yelly. He yells at everybody and he's running around France, always one step behind them trying to find her. So the drama really like teases that this is, you know, her husband, that he's a hothead and he's coming after her. Um, and I, I think, I can't remember how much I watched, but I think at least halfway, if not more than that. And we kind of realized that wasn't exactly the case with this young man, hothead, who was coming after her. So for me, because I didn't finish the drama, the whole husband angle was totally, it's still a mystery and I don't know what happened. <laughs> and I kind of wish I did. Um, now I'm like, hmm, I have to go back and rewatch that, um, which, you know, I know I never will because that's just how life goes. There's always more dramas to try out. Um, so yeah, I really, really enjoyed this show and I do... I do recommend it. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm not sure. I guess a lot of the older dramas sometimes, I mean, it's only from 2017, but sometimes you do go back to the older ones and they feel a little bit different. I feel like dramas have just, I don't know, they've slicked up lately or something. Things are just, I don't know, looking good. Um, so I'm not sure like in terms of has it aged or anything like that. Um, but I think the, the other interesting thing for me about the show is it is very slice of life. And I think that's where the emotion comes into it. You know, like a lot of the characters, like the show isn't dark and it isn't heavy, but a lot of the characters are wrestling with very intense problems and you know they're all trying to get through these things and there's a lot of moments of light or like huge amount of moments of lightness in the show but there's still this kind of I don't know dark underbelly as well I can't quite explain it um the slice of life tagline I suppose is probably the best way to put it um and I think it's just that that realism to some of the problems that they have or some of their darker moments. That is what really gets under your skin, I think, or at least it was for me. 
So I guess what I wanted to do quickly, um, because I'm not going to go into detail about this show, just because you can see I only watched half of it and it has been a while since I've seen it. Um, so I, what I kind of wanted to do was just talk about some of the things I loved. So this is the stuff that you know, I can still remember about this show that it really made a very strong impression of me, um, on me. So that was definitely the setting. Um, the setting was so cool. Like it's very interesting to watch a K-drama that feels like a K-drama and isn't shot in South Korea. And I know there are a lot of K-dramas that are filmed internationally in different countries or at least sections of them, but, um, you know, not that many, it's pretty much predominantly they're set in South Korea. So I think I just found it really interesting just to have such a wildly different setting and not just for, you know, the start of a drama or one scene or a flashback, but for, you know, the whole thing, it's really, it was really cool. And I think just because I am into travel, I am into seeing things on screen that I've never seen before, which I suppose is what, you know, drew me to watching things like K-dramas in the first place. Um, you know, I think it just looks really good. And I really enjoyed that kind of travel documentary kind of feel to it. Um, not in terms of the way the story is or the narrative, but just because every scene has these incredible backdrops that I really, really liked. Um, so the next thing on my list that I really loved I've written is emotion. So even though the show does feel light, like I said, it just has this depth to it somehow that made me feel a lot I'm trying like it's kind of funny like I kind of want to liken it to shows like Hospital Playlist or those like real slice of life you know people just go and do stuff but it has these like really deep emotional undercurrents that are very very subtle and like subtly written like nothing is ham-fisted but at the same time I know the package also leans more towards a bit of quirky comedy as well. So it's kind of an interesting mix, I think, but I really liked it. Um, so the other thing I really liked um, that I was really enjoying before I stopped watching it was the romance. So this kind of very sweet, tentative romance that is forming between, you know, travel guide and this young man whose life is fucked back in Korea, basically. I really liked it because it was so tentative. I thought it was very just nicely written and nicely done. And like, I remember at the time, you know, the stuff with the, the older woman who was dealing with, you know, her horrible husband and cancer and stuff. It was so sad. Like it really permeated into me. Like I found it really just too much for me to handle. But I remember really feeling upset to drop the show because I felt the opposite away about the romance or at least until, you know, as much of it as I had watched, like, you know, a lot of dramas as the romance progresses, they obviously have their breakups and their big emotions and stuff. But the part that I watched, I found the romance to be the complete opposite of my kind of reaction to the cancer part of the story. And it was just so like charming and moving and sweet. And like, I just really, really liked it. And I guess the romance really made me feel good in this show from what I watched. Um, so I put down here that I also liked, you know, the funny stuff and the cute stuff. So those are the things I think that really stuck with me after watching it. Um, so I definitely think that if you are, you know, lacking in new dramas to try and you're just interested in trying something, I think a little bit different, particularly because of probably the location in France and the setting. 
And, you know, the way that because the drama is set on a bus, like it's it's a coach tour thing. So they're traveling around to all different places. Um, so it really moves along and you kind of get this beauty of the landscape and these little local stories and local kind of interesting tidbits about the places they visit that obviously all connect in with each character's emotional journey, like to create this, I think, really nice kind of slice of life tapestry. Um, so so yeah, I think if that sounds interesting to you, you should definitely give this one a go. So I think that's all I'm going to say just because it has been so long since I've seen it. And I can't really go into the detail of the plot or anything like that. Um, but this one was just as a reminder called The Package, 12 episodes from 2017 and starring Eon Hee and Jung Yong Hwa, as well as Choi Woo Shik. Uh, so yeah, that's it from me on The Package. Okay, so next I wanted to talk about a drama called Girls' Generation 1979. So this is like a miniseries, I suppose. I feel like it really went under the, the radar when it came out. So it came out in 2017. Um, I fucking loved it. I was kind of obsessed with this show at the time. I remember just like eating it up. I was very, very, very addicted to, I think, multiple aspects of it, like mainly the two romances. I was like so into it. Um, but I feel like it kind of just went under the radar and I know, you know, I never see it sort of get mentioned or talked about. And I know it's only a mini series, so perhaps that's why. Um, but I did really, really like it. So it's called Girls' Generation 1979, or as I knew it back then, uh, I want to say lingerie because I always say this word wrong, but I think it's lingerie girls generation. No fucking idea why it's called lingerie girls generation. Um, I think the main character's dad owns like an undie factory, like an underwear factory or, or some something like, I don't know. I don't think it matters to be honest. <laughs> so this drama, Girls Generation 1979, is set in 1979. Did you see that coming? <laughs> um, which was really, really interesting. So to me, I feel like this drama definitely has shades of, say, like the Reply series in terms of these, you know, this throwback, um, these kind of, you know, historical fiction, realistically. This, this one's set in the 70s and it's about coming of age and youth in the 70s, as obviously the Reply series is, is for the 80s and 90s. Um, so I really enjoyed just the aspects of it that were historical that are kind of showing career in the 70s, particularly some very interesting things that were kind of like a backdrop, I guess. You know, one of the characters' dad is he's he's quite outspoken, he's very political, and he's quite outspoken against the government. And so in South Korea in the 70s, they were basically, you know, there was a lot of information control by the government. And I didn't really know much about this stuff at all until I was reading some historical fiction this year. Um, but they basically had a dictatorship. You know, there was a lot of intense poverty, a lot of slums and things like that. And then a lot of student protesting and a lot of, um, people protesting the government or that were perceived to be doing, you know, bad things like gangstery things, getting kind of locked up and sent off to like, what, like reformation camps, like re-education camps and just not seen again, like really fucking scary stuff, like being disappeared off the streets because of your political views. Um, and I found it fascinating that this is you watching, you know, a very sweet 
gorgeous kind of historical youth drama set against this intense setting, like a setting that has curfews and, you know, one of the main characters, dad's disappearing and never getting found. Like she just has to get on with her life as I guess an orphan girl now, like it was interesting. And I'm kind of fascinated. Like I think as a writer, I'm particularly fascinated by the idea of telling a certain smaller story with whatever tone it has against like a really big tumultuous backdrop as the setting. But that backdrop might not necessarily be what the story is about. Like I'm, I think that's just such a cool angle to take when telling a story. Like I think it gives something such a fresh angle. So for instance, this drama is a youth coming of age drama. It is about two girls who go to high school and kind of get to know each other and have like all their different love lines and their different coming of age things and their different issues with their parents and their friends, like all this kind of youth drama stuff that we've all seen a million times before. And personally, I love every single time I see it. I have no idea why I love youth dramas so much. I just adore them. I think it's that coming of age thing. I just think it's such powerful emotions, you know, like everything is doubled and tripled in terms of like how these characters feel. So it just makes for great drama um, and great romance and stuff. I really love it. Um, but I really love the idea of a story like that, like this youth drama thing that we've all seen before. We've seen that set in modern day Seoul and, you know, around South Korea a zillion times. But like you just pick that up and you tell the same kind of story against this completely different backdrop that 1979 brings, which is curfews and, you know, different kind of like stuff going on at school and, um, you know, poverty, which, you know, we see that a lot, I suppose, in modern dramas, but it's a different kind of poverty. And, you know, this thing where one of the young men in this, in this drama, um, everyone in this little town just fucking hates him. They all perceive him to be not a good dude. Um, I'm pretty sure from memory, he's like an ex-crim, like an ex-con or whatever. He's come out of jail. He's very young and he's not like doing anything bad now, but he's just like, he's reviled. He's like, no one will go near him. Like it's really, really intense. Um, and I love kind of like those elements of, I guess, the history kind of weaving their way into this very sweet, lovely romantic plot. Okay, I've kind of crapped on a lot about it, but you can tell I really I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was really lovely. Uh, it's also a very short watch. Um, I should have just re-watched it and done a whole episode on it now that I'm thinking about it, but oh well, I didn't do that. So this one really doesn't have any actors or actresses in it that I had really seen before um, and or have really hugely seen since. There's a lot of side characters that are very recognizable faces um, and there's one actress who I know was in the reply series and there's one actor who mm, I totally loved in this but I know he's had some very intense scandals since then probably another reason why I <laughs> don't know if I want to rewatch it um, but I don't really talk about all the scandal stuff on this podcast so if that's something you want to know I would say look it up um, I didn't I don't really try I try not to get too in depth into that stuff because I just find it so fucking depressing like I just love to watch the dramas and 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 just enjoy them and I wish people would stop doing terrible things around the world but that's not how life works so anyway um so I guess I'll just tell you a little bit about the setup and then I'll tell you 
some of the things that I really, really loved about this show. Um, so the setup is the main character is played by an actress called Bona Bonner. So I'm going to guess with a single kind of name like that, she's probably a musician or a singer or a K-pop person. Um, I'm not too sure, but she plays a character called Jung Hee. So Jung Hee is like a very, I don't know, vivacious kind of bright personality kind of type girl. Um, it's just really, you know, very reply series. If you kind of makes me think anyway. So she's at school in this, this town. So it feels like a very small town. It says here that it's set in Daegu in South Korea. So I think that's a city, but it feels very small town. Um, and this girl turns up and I'm pretty sure this other girl who's played by Chae Jin, um, playing a character called Heju. So Jung Hee is the main character and this other girl turns up to her school called Heju and Heju is beautiful. You know, she has like long, shiny hair and she's so gorgeous. And I'm pretty sure from memory, she's like from Seoul. So she doesn't have like an accent or anything, or, you know, she has a Seoul accent and all the boys are just like, oh my gosh, who is this beautiful, beautiful angel? And so of course, uh, Jung Hee, the main character is crushing hard on this dude at her school. Who's like, he's the smartest, most handsome dude in the whole world. And he's also like the top of their class and he's so cool. And from memory, he's like super rich and she's hitting on him and he's just like he sees this new girl Heju walk in with her shiny hair and he's like I love this girl like that's the girl for me so he starts hitting on Heju and meanwhile Jung Hee our main character is like completely devastated of course um and I won't fully go into it but there's this kind of like you know a real complicated kind of romance thing where there's this very sweet kind of dopey cute boy who ends up you know becoming her friend but he's following her around he really likes her I'm so into the unrequited love stuff um so his name is Dong Moon he's played by an actor that again I don't really know haven't seen um So Young Ju uh and I really liked him and the thing that I really enjoyed about him and the love line between the main character Jung Hee and this guy is he feels like a second male lead like a hundred percent. He feels like the goofy, sweet, always nice second male lead, even to the point where he has these like massive framed old school, you know, cause it's the seventies, of course they're old school, but like massive, you know, big black rimmed glasses that would be considered actually like, I think he looks super cute, but like, you know, they wouldn't be considered cool or something like that. Um, so he really has second male lead feel around him and their bickering kind of friendship and everything that's going on. And yet he's end game. And that was really, really fun for me. I really liked it. So their romance, um, Jung Hee, the main character who's chasing after, you know, the hot boy at school and then ends up realizing that this other boy who's kind of always hanging out with her and is sort of her, like becomes her best friend, like really, he's the right one for her. Um, their romance was just like so sweet. I loved it. It was addictive and just so cute and moving and so sweet. And then on the flip side, you have, you know, the new girl who turns up with the shiny hair. Her name is Heju. She has her own romance and hers is like deep and dark and emotional and so swoony for me. But like, I'll tell you guys, if you've been listening to this podcast for a little while, you all know that I have some very intense personal taste kind of stuff that I really like and their romance hit the spot for me. Um, it had those aspects that I really like. So basically, 
she's come into town because her dad is this very politically outspoken dude. He's like a professor or something at university, I think. And he's sort of been forced to kind of like leave his job and go out to this, you know, middle of nowhere place. Um, And obviously, you know, the government's keeping an eye on him. So she, Heju has been brought up in, I would say like quite a different way because her dad has a very kind of different outlook on the world and their government and everything, which I guess gives her this, you know, otherworldly city vibe to all the other kids. Um, And so, you know, the hot, smart boy keeps trying to hit on her, but she's not really interested. And we begin to realize that she is just so lonely and, you know, all this thing with her dad and all this stuff that's been going on, like she's having a tough time. And then like her dad disappears and she's just fucked basically but no one really looks after her or you know she doesn't really have anyone to turn to it's so intense um but there's this guy so I mentioned earlier that there's so there's a character called Young Chun so Young Chun is he works in like the pharmacy I think it is the, yeah the pharmacy is kind of like you know he's like a shop boy he does the floors and washes down and just does all the errands and does stuff and he works there but everyone in the village hates him because he is an ex con who was in criminal uh, who was in jail or whatever and he's not he's clean he's out he's doing the right thing he has a little brother um, but he's a bit of like an ex-gangster so people are hardcore around him but he's just trying to make money he's doing odd jobs so you can see like this is my taste right like poverty stricken dude I'm so fucking predictable right <laughs> I'm so embarrassed <laughs> but it was good god damn it it was I promise um so Heju kind of you know, I guess they just, she's nice to him. She's kind to him and no one else is. Everyone else hates him and she is just nice to him. And he's like very tentative and very careful and very like holding back all the time. But clearly, you know, he falls in love with her. And then we get this moment where Heju's dad goes missing and there's no one for her to turn to. And so she goes to him, you know, like, and it's, I don't know, it was so romantic. I loved their whole romance. Um, I was really, really into it. And I think the whole show was just so much fun and so nice. It's just all that kind of youth love line, really complicated tangle of, you know, what, two sort of love triangles, I guess, with an overlapping dude in there somewhere. Like, I don't even know. It was very complicated, (laughs) but it was really, really good. Um, But I think I just really liked the way the two romances really complemented each other. You know, one was just very sweet and innocent and young and fizzy and lovely. And the other one was very like achingly romantic and felt very deeply emotional and was much higher stakes because of the situation that these two characters were in and just the utter kind of isolation, like social isolation that they're both experiencing, that they find this hope in each other where they can both see the other person through the kind of, um, I guess, rumors and crap that everyone in the village has kind of wrapped them up in, you know, like they're both able to see the heart of each other and it's very, very moving. I really, really loved it. Um, so I do have a list of things that I love, but I'm pretty sure I've already just talked about it all. So I had the romance, the fact that one was cute and the other was deeply swoony, um, loved them both. The background of the story. So that seventies and South Korea, you know, I, I just thought it was so cool to have that kind of higher stakes aspect. And I think just a fresh way to tell 
what is ultimately a familiar story, no matter how many times I want to watch this familiar story, which I do, like I love these kind of youth coming of age things, like I'll watch them forever. So, But I did think it just adds a nice, unique, fresh angle to kind of set it in a different time. Um, so I've said here that I would say it's a good show maybe to try if you like the Reply series, but I don't know if tonally it's quite the same. I think, um, you know, Reply has these very moving almost slice of life character moments and I'm not sure if that's exactly what this this show is going for I think it's probably more of a standard kind of narrative but I think it just has that historical element of that you know set in the 70s that I think if you do like the reply series that you know are very based around romance as well but with that historical element then you might enjoy it um, and I also think if you do like youth dramas if you watch those high school dramas then this is just you know it's another one but I think it's just a real kind of little gem of one because it is cute and funny and it has all the love triangles and all those you know little petty jealousies and bickering all that stuff that you like but I think well that I like I should say but I think it also has some deeply emotional swoony stuff as well which I really really liked um, so I guess that's all I'll say on Girls Generation 1979 also known as Lingerie Girls Generation because of the underwear or something. I don't know. Um, apparently it's also based on a novel, which is quite interesting. Mm-mm. I should look that up. So now it is time for my random thing of the week. And I really do have something very, very random for you. Um, so I was just kind of like, I guess I was doing research or something. I have no idea how I even came across this. Um, but I guess I fell down like a mad Joseon history rabbit hole or something. And I came across this really interesting story, which I had never heard of. Um, so there was this woman called Iguji. Um, so Iguji lived in the kind of mid to late 1400s in Joseon and she was a Joseon princess. It says here that she was a princess and a writer, artist and poet. Um, so she it's just it's her, her life story that I, I guess I just wanted to very quickly tell you guys because I read this and I was just slightly fascinated. It was just very interesting. Um, but it's, you know, ultimately utterly tragic, of course, because... <laughs> It was during the Joseon dynasty and history is shit. <laughs> it's tragic, always. Um, so Gucci was a daughter of a dude called Prince Young Nyong. Um, so he was the first son of the third Joseon king, Taejong of Joseon. So this is in the 1400s. So her mother was a palace slave um, with whom, so this prince, Prince Young Nyong, had two children, um, but the mother's name was never recorded. So I always find this really interesting, you know, when you start looking at the royal families and the history, um, you know, the kings are recorded, obviously, and sometimes you see... I guess with the women, like if they had consorts or, you know, they had a child with, say, a palace maid or a palace slave or something like that, these women just remain unnamed in history. And sometimes the princes will have, you know, to say a slave or a court, you know, a palace lady slave or something. They'll have a daughter and that daughter will also re remain unnamed. Obviously, I don't mean they were unnamed at the time, but it's just they've been lost to history. No one ever records anything about these people. And I find that just somehow really interesting, like the idea that all these like, I mean, I guess particularly women 
lived in these very interesting times, like quite like, you know, she had children with a prince and still no one will remember her name. Um, anyway, that was a side kind of waffle, but I just kind of blows my mind when you actually think about that. Um, these people who lived these utterly crazy lives and have just been forgotten to time. And I think that's what I kind of felt when I just stumbled across this entry about this Joseon princess. It's a very tragic story, but I was just like, wow, this woman lived and died in the 1400s and she lived this kind of life. And I mean, ultimately it's very, very tragic, but at least I suppose it got recorded. Um, they actually, because of what she did, they struck her out of the, the records. But in the seventies, they found one record which still had her story in it. So now it's sort of been brought back out into the light. Um, so anyway, uh, her dad was a prince and um, so she was given the title of princess. So she married, I don't know, some dude. <laughs> so I've got his name here, but, you know, I don't know who he is. Um, so he was a lesser official. So she married this official and they went to live in Guangzhou which is her husband's hometown. So they have two sons and then her husband dies in 1470. So they don't have her birthday. It was never recorded. So I don't know how old she was by this point, but in, so 1470, her husband dies and Guji is prevented from remarrying because of the social stigma of the time. Um, and then apparently in 1477, they introduced something called the anti-remarriage law. So I've been reading a lot of Joseon folk tales um and you know they're they're very interesting like kind of just little windows into the time quite a few of them deal with widows um so obviously after 1477 uh that's what i just said yeah 1477 um you know women that were widowed weren't really meant to get remarried and if you were in a noble family for instance you had to move to your husband's house and then he died um, quite often that family doesn't want to feed you and support you so there is a lot of pressure to do the moral thing which is to commit suicide which is just fucking charming isn't it um so yeah and and a lot of these folk tales that deal with i guess the stories of widows you know it's, it's really interesting there's always two different types so one of the folk tales I read is about, you know, this young woman who was widowed and her dad and her family are like, oh, come on, you know, like, come back and live with us. Like, we miss you. We'll set up a marriage for you. It doesn't matter what, you know, the morally right thing to do is just come and we'll look after you and you can have a good life. And this woman is very pious and very filial. And she's like, no. I'm going to stay here with my mother-in-law. You know, she's old and sick and I'm going to look after her for the rest of her life. And, you know, obviously that's a moral, <laughs> you know, that that's a folktale with a moral center. Um, it's definitely trying to teach you something about what a woman should be in those times. But interestingly enough, I came across another folktale in the same collection and it was very different. So it was about a young woman who was widowed and she was trying to do the pious right thing. And she ends up back though at her dad's house uh, because of some reason that I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, and she's sitting in, his, in her dad's house and she's just really depressed and unhappy and she's lonely and her husband's dead and he's been dead for ages. And the dad's like, why don't you get remarried and be happy and have some kids and live like a really nice life? And the woman's like, no, you know, I'm going to be moral and filial and I'm never going to do that. And the dad's like, well, I think I'm just going to make up 
a weird scenario where you just have to be happy. So he goes off and he selects this, you know, nice young soldier guy. And he's like, you'd be a great husband for my random daughter. So he brings this random soldier home, soldier guy home, tricks his daughter into, for some reason, thinking she has to run away, you know, because of some other reason with this young man. And he tells the young man, like, bring my daughter up north and hide away and get married. And so, you know, she does. So the dad basically fakes her death um, to enable her to go off and get married to this random dude that he selected. So, you know, it's of its time, obviously, that story. Um, but very interesting because that story is obviously condemning the fact that women once widowed were not allowed or morally it was frowned upon um, to get remarried. So I just think it's really interesting. And both those tales are recorded, you know, in the same volume of folk tales and they have such different angles. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that was a really long kind of winding side story about this princess, this Joseon princess in the 1400s called Guji. Um, so obviously her husband's died and she's living in her husband's hometown and she has these two sons and they never get mentioned in the century again. But, um, after five years after her husband's died, it was reported to Sahonbu. So we all know Sahonbu if, well, maybe you do. If you were listening to my podcast a few episodes ago, um, I was talking about a drama called Heti, which is a historical drama, which is just a really great really great, wonderful historical. And it's all about this investigation bureau called Sahonbu. And Sahonbu, I explained, you know, during that episode, um, was all about searching out corruption in the government, but also searching out people like aristocrats or also common people who were not abiding by the Confucius kind of, I guess, framework for society. So one of those things would be, um, you know, you're a widow and you've fallen in love with and are living with your slave, which is what Princess Guji was doing in 1475. So it was reported to Sahonbu that she was cohabiting with her slave. Um, and at first they were all like, oh, she's very noble. She's very high up. We'll just sort of leave her alone. But then eventually um, this guy, this slave, Chonre, they find out that she's had a baby with him and so she's had a daughter and that's too far and everyone starts getting like really upset. So they go to um, Princess Guji's house um, quite a long time after they first started hearing the rumours of it and um, basically they decide to torture all her servants as a way to investigate the claim that she's living with, you know, cohabiting with her slave for these last 10 years or more than 10 years it's been by this point. And they've had a child together. And so 40 of her servants are all arrested and tortured. And, you know, this slave, this man that she's with, um, what was his name? Chonre is also arrested and tortured and he dies, which is super crappy um and she is they don't want to condemn her like to torture or to execution because it's you know she's very high up and that's considered like just so lowly and terrible so they tell her to kill herself basically so she has to um she has to die so that's the end the water story i just told you guys super depressing right um but it's interesting but because um so she was condemned it was considered more respectful that she kill herself rather, you know, 
that she commits suicide um, was considered more of the correct punishment for a woman of the royal clan. It was considered more respectful than torture or, you know, death by torture, which is what happened to 40 of her servants. I don't know if all the servants died, but, you know, her love obviously died. They don't even mention the daughter or what happened to her. Um, so what happened after this? Because she was condemned, um, Princess Guji was deleted from the royal family lineage and her name remained taboo until the end of the Joseon dynasty. So in the 1970s, her name was found in something that I don't know about called Veritable Records of the Joseon Dynasty, which I'll have to look into. Interesting. Um, so they just came across it and realized this whole kind of story that this life that she'd lived. And can you even imagine that at that time in the 1400s, she's a princess and she ended up, you know, presumably she was in love with this this man, this slave, because they lived together for well over 10 years and had a child together. I mean, she didn't have to have him living with her. So presumably she liked him. Um, but, you know, that's pretty intense for a class divide. Um, but interestingly, of course, if she had been a prince and, you know, had been cohabiting with a slave a woman that would have been 100% totally fine and no one would have batted an eyelid but you know those are the times <laughs> um, and that's the way things were um, anyway I thought it was a really interesting story even though it's certainly very sad and depressing I suppose um, but you know it did happen quite a long time ago uh, so I hope you're not too sad that I told it to you <laughs> I thought it was really interesting um, so that was my random very 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 random thing for today So now it is time for my something I'm loving section this week and I'm still on the Joseon history so if that's not your thing I'm very sorry I apologize <laughs> I'm waffling on a bit about it today but I do feel very excited about all this stuff um, so because of my research into you know the history behind Joseon because of the novels that I write um, I've been reading this really really incredible book um, and it's basically a collection of letters sent during the Joseon dynasty um, that have been translated into English, obviously, because I unfortunately cannot read Hangul or, um, you know, anything else other than English, actually, um, which is very sad. Well, technically, I can read Hangul, but I just don't understand what it says. Um, so that was a big side waffle. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Anyway. So I think this is really, really interesting. At first I was like, oh, cool, you know, a bunch of letters from the Joseon dynasty. And I started reading the intro of this book and it's very academic. And at first I was like, I have no fucking idea what they're even talking about this way over my head. Um, but then, you know, once the kind of more academic stuff that was a little bit inaccessible for me was over, they the person who was writing this foreword started talking about, I guess, the importance of something like letters. Um, you know, everyone everyone kind of creates a history, I suppose, like every culture will have their written history. They have, um, you know, their, I guess, official records. And then something like a collection of actual letters and correspondence from an era really gives you a different kind of window into a time period that can sometimes contradict the things that we actually know about the time. And the more I thought about it or reveal the domestic, you know, very small scale slice of life moments that, you know, don't get recorded in these big history annals and things like that. Um, so I just find that idea like just 
that concept is so fascinating when you think about it that, you know, just a small letter that someone wrote to a friend in the Joseon dynasty, like it's true, it has such merit now all these years later. Um, if you want to understand more about that culture and society and time. Um, and it was really, really interesting to me, like, you know, in my random thing, I was talking about you know, I guess with the princess and this slave that she was living with, like that's very, very much so against the social norms or what was considered acceptable at that time. And yet clearly it happened. And if it happened once, perhaps it happened more than that. Who knows? But as we saw from, you know, Princess Guji, she gets struck from the records. That is not part of the official history of Joseon. It's only something that has been unearthed now. But a lot of these things get hidden. Um, and it was a really interesting thing because, Another thing that I guess people now know about Joseon history or the Joseon dynasty is that because it was built on this framework of Confucius ideas, I suppose, um, an ideal, ideal, man, I cannot say that word, <laughs> ideology, that's it, Confucius ideology, um, you know, it was a very patriarchal type of society very much so where women did not have a lot of agency and weren't able to do a lot of things and weren't really educated in the same way that men were. They were more educated in domestic things and, you know, moral books and I don't know, etiquette, that kind of stuff. And it's just really interesting because, you know, that's a thing that we know about the Joseon dynasty. And in this book of letters that I have, a correspondence from that time, there's really interesting things. Like um, for one of them is this eulogy written by a scholar of the time. So he's quite a high-end scholar. Like I think he was a little bit famous at the time uh, and probably is now, but I, I hadn't heard of him before. But he basically wrote a eulogy for his daughter and in it, he's talking about, you know, how wonderful she is and just the grief that he's experiencing because she is gone, which is very, very sad. But he's also talking about her and she, he says that she is his, you know, intellectual partner. Like she is the one, you know, this is like a very learned, famous scholar of the time. And he's saying that his daughter was the person who intellectually, you know, he wanted to talk to about his ideas and his theories and his ideology. Here there I am with that word again, um, which is fascinating because that is not what I think I would have expected for that time period. Um, and even more so in, in the book, it even notes how unusual it is because his daughter, when she passes away, she was already married. So in Joseon times, once your daughter married, she would move into her husband's house. And a lot of times that would really kind of cease, not fully cease contact with their home, but like, obviously this scholar and his daughter still completely kept up a very close and loving friendship and relationship, even after his daughter had moved away and married. And you know, that's kind of unusual and very, very interesting. And of course, you know, what we know about history and society and different cultures, like it's not all there was, it's just what was recorded. Um, but I love the idea of these little domestic letters or you know, an, a eulogy towards his daughter. Um, 
gets recorded and reveals a different side to what we know, like a window into, you know, a different world all those hundreds of years ago. I just think it's really, really cool. And I think it's so incredible that not only has someone collected these things and published them, but also they've been translated into English and I am able to read them now. Um, it's just really cool. I, I kind of feel really grateful for it. And I, I think that's something that I'm really, really loving. Um, you know, sometimes I think we forget in this world that we live in, this modern era, like how much we kind of have at our fingertips a lot, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of terrible things with the modern world as well, obviously, but there's so many benefits that, you know, I can read a book like that and I can search out these things that I want to know. And, you know, the internet is just... <laughs> It's a horrible place sometimes, but it's also a wealth of incredible information as well. I don't know. I don't know what I'm waffling about anymore, but I guess it's just something I've been thinking about a little bit that I thought was really, really cool this week. Now it is time to thank my patrons who have decided to support me on Patreon. Thank you guys so very much. I really, really appreciate it. So this is a massive thank you to Arlene, Chai, Catalina, Francis, Jamie, Catherine, Liliana, Marta, and Carolyn. You guys are honestly the best and it means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. 